This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Darcy Grant uh, is directing a show that's on at Melbourne Festival. The circus company Gravity and Other Myths presenting their latest work, Backbone. Darcy, good morning. How are you going? Good morning. How's it going? Yeah, not too bad at all. I've had a couple of coffees and uh, uh, feel like I'm getting into the swing of the morning. So Good. Me too, Judge. <laughs> now, Darcy, where are you based? Are you Because I know Gravity and Other Myths are an Adelaide company, but I get the feeling you don't live in Adelaide. No, that's true, actually. I'm actually speaking to you from Norpa, which is the Northern Rivers Performing Arts Centre in Lismore, because uh, I live just outside of Lismore. So um, I, I live and work up here quite a bit, but um, I jet down to Adelaide and work with Gravity and Other Myths sometimes too. Yeah, okay. Now, um, yeah. when I first saw this company, was at Melbourne Fringe several years ago now. It was their very first show when I think they weren't so much a company called Gravity and Other Myths, but that was the name of their first show. Uh, and they've since kind of coalesced around that and then the next show of theirs I saw had taken this enormous step up it was all their first show was already great and then suddenly they took this huge step up with a simple space and kind of re- doing really fascinating stuff with circus and I'm, I'm told that backbone is a, yet an, a step up again yeah, a lot of people have said that. Um, I mean, I think it's important to remember, uh, as you say, with a simple space, um, how how accomplished the company had become under their own steam um, before me or any of the other creatives came along. Um, Backbone does represent, though, a big step up for the company, particularly in terms of um, its uh, sort of uh, design, level of design um, and, and conceptual clout. So we actually, yeah, the amazing amazing thing um, with this project is, um, that is amazing in circus, is that we actually got a budget to make it, which is um, which very is, rare. Uh, quite a thing. Yeah. Yeah, very rare indeed. So, because it was yeah. co-commissioned by Adelaide Festival and Melbourne Festival, I understand. That's right. Um, so Adelaide Festival chaperoned us to MFI. So we actually ended up getting a major festivals initiative funding um, for Backbone. Um, and Sydney and yeah, and Neil and Rachel at Adelaide came on to, to get us through. So it was amazing. I think it speaks volumes for how Circus is starting to be sort of elevated into um, uh, the yeah the loftier heights of our artscape in Australia. It's certainly for me the focus over the last decade, uh, instead of just talking about Circus, there's been a conversation about Circus. Circus Arts, uh, and there's a, quite a few companies that are really evolving the form. Circa up in Brisbane, obviously another Brisbane company, Cassis. Uh, but for me, uh, Gravity and Other Myths as a company, also kind of world leaders in pushing the boundaries of what circus is as an art form and what it can do. For you as director, mm-hmm. talk to us about what, how you were you invited to work with the company? Did you approach them? And what did you want? to do with them that they weren't already doing? Uh, it's it's a really good question. So Gravity uh, and Anamis and myself had a, an interesting history before I came to work for them. Uh, in my former life as a um, as an acrobat myself, I worked at Circa for over 10 years. Um, we used to all get, the circus community would all get together at these circus festivals and we would skill share. So when they were teenagers, I taught them skills. Uh, so I knew them as kids. Um, as, as I sort of transitioned to the other side, um, the making side, uh, and those guys were looking for, um, you know, looking for a, another agitator or provocateur for their new work, uh, we bumped into each other again 
again and decided to give it a go. So yeah, that's that's that part. Um, you know what I what I wanted to do with them or how I guess um, the question was clear. How do we boldly take the the bunch of um, performers and artists at Gravity and other myths and give them um, some sort of you know solid and bold um, you know uh, new directions to move in? That they're really a company that's all about self development. So they just really wanted to learn some new things um, and yeah and and attempt a work that was very different to anything they'd ever done so really it was kind of the perfect gig for me because it was yeah just came from a place of real trust but also um, yeah gave me a lot of room to to imagine now, one of the things that I've read about the show, having not seen it, I was at the Adelaide Festival earlier this year, but on the wrong weekend to, to catch Backbone. Uh, and one of the reviews that I've read uh, in, in Daily talks about the fact that there are traditional circus elements present in the work. So people, uh, if they're at all familiar with kind of contemporary circus, new circus, uh, acrobatics, juggling, some clowning and contortion, those elements are there. But they've been pushed to conceptual limits and also even cerebral limits. So talk to us about that aspect of the show, about pushing it out beyond the the familiar framework of uh, trick, pause for a pause, next trick, pause for applause and so forth. Yeah, look, um, as, because I have been in and around circus in that this last sort of ten or fifteen year block that you've been talking about uh, earlier, um, I I really feel like this. I like to call the last sort of ten ten years this this move toward the kind of circus that I call chamber circus. So it's 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 fairly Australian. It's um, usually fairly vacuous and minimal. Um, things are pulled apart and look a little bit closer to contemporary dance at times um, and I really feel like it's things are starting to move in a new direction again so we're we're trying to kind of you know deconstruct even further look inside what the quality of movement tells us what what we can articulate with our bodies that um, yeah that, that we can't you know, there, there does seem to be a bit of a pattern in all circus where it sort of goes meaning, 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 and now here's a skill. So how how do you blur those lines, and how can you make the skill mean things? Is um, yeah, is something I'm constantly thinking about. Uh, and and I think with those guys, with the Gravity and Other Miss troupe, the the amazing thing is that um, they they've got a really good sense of what they're not. Um, so it was really. Uh, easy to find the register that we were performing in. You know, they are a bunch of acrobats performing on stage in front of an audience. We're not, we're not sort of transporting our audience anywhere or trying to, uh, inhabit characters per se. It's more just trying to interrogate their own pre-existing relationships to each other. Um, so, so I guess that's how, that's the beginning point. And then lots and lots of sweating and time and sleepless nights trying to work out how to, how to make an audience feel that. What's different from directing circus as opposed to, say, directing theatre? Have you had those kind of conversations with theatre makers versus your approach to physical theatre and circus? I don't have a great deal of um, experience uh, in theatre or dance, or indeed making circus. Actually, I haven't made much stuff. Um, but from what I from what I can tell. Um, the the skill sets of making a show really vary between forms. I'm working with Julian Louis up here, who's theatre trained, but he works in dance theatre with play people like the the farm and things like that. And and really, yeah, I mean, I'm really drawn to task based and uh, work uh, task based choreography, task based kind of generation of work. But then also having fairly specific physical ideas that you want to back that up with. Um, so it's a real hybrid approach for me. I, I don't tend to 
write or score, um, it, it tends to fall out of um, building pressure in the rehearsal room. So I'm not exactly sure how, you know, it seems like Julian does that a lot too with theatre, the theatre works that I've worked on with him as well. So I guess I'll tell you when I know a bit more about everything. <laughs> Fair enough. Good answer. <laughs> uh, we'll have to catch up for a beer during the festival and we can uh, pick that apart a little bit further. Um, yeah, that sounds good. One of the things that I really love about Gravity and Other Myths as a company is the fact that they began as uh, as kids, as you've said, working at the, the Adelaide Youth Circus Training Centre, Sir Kids, uh, and they've yeah. gone from there. So there's a real kind of cohesion to to the company mm. and what they do. Does that then, yep. given that they've, they the, the, the core of the company have known each other for such an extended period, I would imagine that must make the degree of trust really strong within them, which then translates to kind of uh, even more kind of bold physicality. Absolutely. And even for, you know, how hard and far I can push uh, the conceptual limits that you were talking about, when you've got this deep um, security in each other, there's a real security there. Um, you know, the, the core of the team, there's five or six members in there that have been working for 15 years together. Um, so in Australia at the moment, they are the longest um, serving, continuously engaged um, circus ensemble in the country, which is also why the level of skill is kind of at the highest peak we've ever had of group acrobats in Australia. Um, so it's it's a joy, not only because uh, it's impressive and, um, you know, from the director's chair, Almost the the limit. There are no limits to what you can ask um, them to attempt because they're just so secure in knowing what's possible and what's not. Well, I'm really looking forward to seeing the show. Gravity and Other Myths Backbone is on as part of Melbourne Festival from the fourth to the eighth of October in the Playhouse at Art Centre Melbourne. If you want to book, you can jump online to the Melbourne Festival website www.festival.melbourne. The festival itself kicking off next week, running from the fourth to the twenty second of October. But if you are um, at all a fan of contemporary circus work, then I can tell you without a doubt, Gravity and Other Myths are one of my very favourite circus companies, not just in Australia, but in the world. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to this new show, Backbone. I've been chatting with uh, its director, Darcy Grant. Darcy, thanks heaps for your time. Thanks, Richard. Nadja Kostic is the Artistic Director of St Martin's Youth Arts Centre uh, and joins us to talk about a new St Martin's work presented as part of Fringe called For the Ones Who Walk Away. Nadja, welcome. Good morning, Richard. Good to have you back. It's been Hi. quite a, it's been a while. It has. I actually can't remember what the last thing was that we were talking about. It was before you became the AD at St Martin's, that's yes, for sure. So. it's my almost one-year anniversary. Congratulations. <laughs> so, uh, uh, filling the shoes of Claire Watson, who's Indeed. gone off over to Black Swan State Theatre Company. Before we talk about the show, let's just give yeah. some context for people who maybe aren't aware of St Martin's and the arc the company has taken over the years, because it was originally a, a fairly traditional youth theatre company model, and it has its own theatre space over there in South Yarra. Uh, and under Claire, in the, the last few years, uh, other kind of artistic directors in being involved as well and uh, a couple of different general managers, setting the, 
the company on a course. So it's much less about training young actors as to having a young ensemble and creating work that's often recently been young people making work for adult audiences. Correct, yes. So Claire Watson and Nada Shanley, who is still our executive director, um, reinvented uh, the, the mission of of St Martin's and it was much needed because um, that reinvention and, and that point of difference performing at children performing for adult audiences is one of the things that really got us through and we now have four-year funding, state and federal. So the quality of the work uh, and the, the branding of St Martin's kind of really went out there over the last three years and piqued people's interest. Yeah. So It certainly piqued my interest because that notion of... Um, giving young people agency and recognising that they're not just the audience of the future or the artists of the future, which are terms that often get bandied around when people from outside the sector are talking about youth arts, but recognising that, no, young people are culturally curious, uh, artistically creative, and giving them agency to make work to entertain themselves and adult audiences is a, a fantastic step. Yeah, and and in this project, indeed, the, we ask some big philosophical questions and they've been really astounding in their ability to have a sophisticated dialogue and to contribute um, really uh, yeah, powerful thoughts and, and ideas into the collaborative process. So what kind of ideas uh, and themes are being explored and interrogated in For the Ones Who Walk Away? So we've... Uh, had a whole of company investigation, which is more than 150 young people across all our workshops, across five sites, um, with the departure point of uh, Ursula Le Guin's for the uh, the ones who walk away from Omelus. It's a short story, which is about um, there's a there's a room of horror inside a happy city. So um, it, it investigates utopia and dystopia and uh, across all the age groups. So we have um, uh, almost 60 of those children performing between the ages of 9 and 17. And across the age groups, um, the the young people investigated uh, these themes. And really where we came to is that this is not futuristic Often some of these um, almost sci-fi fables and allegories and fantasies feel really distant from us and what we really came down to is that we are living this today and that's where we want to um, take the work and have people come in and read the work in that way. For people who haven't read the short story, it's about Mm. um, uh, a utopian city where the happiness of all the citizens depends on the unhappiness uh, of one child. Uh, And it's it's a confronting idea uh, and that notion of and it's so relevant to today because as we know we live in a in a cultural uh, culturally rich affluent western country where some of us can and do turn to choose to turn our backs and ignore that our happiness is supported and uh, dependent on the suffering of other people, be it the 
the people who are manufacturing our clothes in uh, in hideous conditions or the people who are manufacturing our technological devices or the people who are try- who are, who have come to our country uh, in search in search of refuge and we've imprisoned on an island somewhere exactly i feel like there are third world pockets in our own country absolutely um and and it's about living with the tension of of this and young people live with the tension of that just as adults do and they're fully aware of it and cognizant of it and so that's what we are unpacking i mean it's probably important to say that uh at siteworks where uh we are performing it's uh 14 different spaces that we occupy uh 12 rooms and two enormous corridors we still stay in an allegorical or um, metaphorical uh, rendering of this of this story. So it's not like we go into asylum seeker stories or a specific child labouring. But when you come um, to see the piece, you will see stages of industry, quote unquote using uh, the, the materials that, that we use, which probably have some resonances that are, um, yeah, a little more me- metaphorical. So that's to give people space to imagine and make their own journey. And to avoid kind of the, the kind of lecturing didactic quality that can sometimes come with issues-based theatre. Definitely, yeah. definitely, uh, and the work is also uh, tapping into the, the kind of rich uh, nature of promenade theatre as well. So instead of tethering the audience to a single space and presenting them with a series of scenes, um, kind of utilising all the potential that a range of sites and spaces have so that people can move around uh, and see a story unfolding at, a, at their own pace. Exactly. And, you know, that is part of the challenge of it as well. We, we do bring them to, together at the end, which I really wanted, wanted to bring everybody together so that we can see each other and see all the children. But there is a big component of it that is self-guided by the audiences and you can't see everything. So something's always out of reach. Um, you can't... There's more there on offer than one person can consume and that's part of the rising kind of in our in our stomachs in our world uh, we are just overwhelmed um, and so it can be with this performance it's a, the challenge is to stay um, and immerse yourself inside these rooms and actually see that the, there's repetition. There's repetition at play everywhere. The cycles are there, the kind of mesmeric cycles of our society. And it's a fantastic when audience members can actually stay in a room and see it repeat maybe a couple of times and, and they've talked about seeing the decay as you see the repetition. So there's um, each audience member can um, have an experience that they've designed. I like the idea of there being too much to see because then that also taps into not only the kind of the the media-saturated world that we live in where the, the, uh, the... with so much information on offer at our fingertips that it, it is literally overwhelming. And also uh, referencing consumer culture as well, that we are constantly being told to consume more. Yeah, and it's having a look at ourselves and, and it will come up in the performance, that fear of missing out to such a degree potentially 
unless you really kind of get on top of it, that you only end up picking at a whole lot of stuff and actually not going deep. So the challenge is stay as still as you can, take as much time as you can. You won't see everything, but it's better to see um, fewer things um, in a deeper way. And that's the challenge of our world. Yeah. So, and again, that notion then of asking the audience to, uh, to, to make choices, but asking the audience to, to watch in a much more active way than mm-hmm. the traditional kind of passive viewing of television or even uh, the, the passive viewing experience that is uh, some theatre as well. Uh, here, work is not being served up to you. You have to carve it yourself. You do, that's right. And some rooms are more interactive than others, but you certainly, um, yeah, you will be invited to interact. The production is For the Ones Who Walk Away. It's uh, presented by St Martin's and Melbourne Fringe uh, and is on its site works at 33 Saxon Street in Brunswick. Uh, if you would like more info, jump online, www.stmartinsyouth.com.au um, and you can also find out more about the production, of course, at melbournefringe.com.au. But yes, as I said, on at site works, 33 Saxon Street, Brunswick, For the Ones Who Walk Away. Nadja Kostic, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Richard. Black Rider, the casting of the Magic Bullets, is the latest production and the latest collaboration between Malthouse Theatre and Victorian Opera. It's on now uh, in the Cooper's Malthouse. And uh, joining us to tell us more, we have Kanan Breen and Phoebe Briggs. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Thank you. Hi. So, uh, Phoebe, I'm going to start with you. (laughs) Ooh, there's a slightly (laughs) evil laugh there. (laughs) (laughs) When friends and colleagues have asked you about this work, how have you been describing it to people? Well, it's a work... It really tips the balance between um, sort of junk jazz, junk uh, gospel rock and... uh, Well, it's not really music theatre all, but... Well, it is. There's there's a little bit of music theatre and a little bit of sort of um, funky opera. It's a real mixture of styles and typical um, Tom Waits... Uh, soundscape that just uh, is like escaping reality really mm. for about an hour and 45 minutes. Too right. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's like, it, it's a crazy sort of um, juxtaposition between um, grand opera, vaudeville, Eastern European folkloric mysticism, um, beer ballads. It's an extraordinary sort of jambalaya of of musical worlds all thrown into the same pot telling this uh, incredible story of um, addiction and obsession and and love and destruction and possible redemption and what have you all neatly wrapped up into an hour and a half of um, very intense physical um, theatre. I love the fact that, I mean, it's not just that music and lyrics by Tom Waits and Waits is such a kind of... uh, oddly iconoclastic musician uh, who will take everything from, I don't know, strange seed pods and uh, to more traditional instruments to make music with, but then uh, adding in text by uh, the late kind of author of Junkie and many other books, uh, William S. Burroughs. Mm. Um, and 
kind of basing it all on what a, a kind of gothic German fairy tale. Yeah, the, um, the Fatal Marksman, it's called. And it's the same fairy tale that uh, Weber's Die Freischutz was also based on. So it's the, the tale of the, the temptation of uh, a clerk, played by Kanan, uh, who wants to marry his love and the love's father will not let him marry him because he's not a huntsman. And so therein lies a problem and... Uh, Canaan gets to meet the devil and the devil tempts him. That makes a deal, the <laughs> classic deal with the devil at the crossroads yep. uh, in order to um, to win his love's hand. He has mm. to um, make a pact that uh, he ultimately is incapable of repaying and uh, the consequences are seldom good in such situations. <laughs> yes. So one of the joys with a show like this is for the audience knowing how it's presumably how it is going to end up because we're familiar with these mm. tropes mm. Uh, and occasionally there may be redemption but far too often kind of somebody is dragged off screaming by the devil. Mm. So for the mm. audience it's about a familiar arc but the delight is then seeing what what new is brought to that arc. Well, there was a very satisfying moment in last night's performance when uh, Dimity Shepherd, who plays... I don't know if you heard this, Feeps, in the from the orchestra pit. Dimity, who plays my love interest, uh, at the end of the show there's a beautiful sort of dreamlike wedding scene that is sort of the lead-up to um, slightly less pleasant events. And uh, it's all... Uh, Matthew Lutton has directed that scene in some quite extended slow motion. And when Dimity appeared on the stage in her wedding dress, someone in the audience went... <gasps> and yeah, had this gorgeous gasp, almost yes. as though there was at least one person in the audience who didn't know how the show was going <laughs> yes. to end. I thought, oh dear, this yeah. person's in for a shock. Yes, and then as the soundscape sort of expands mm. and the tension builds, that person was probably sitting there thinking, oh, oh, oh. something <laughs> bad, come on. Yeah. Now, Phoebe, you're uh, the music director of yes. this piece, so how challenging is Waits' score uh, as opposed to uh, works that uh, Victorian opera may uh, be kind of more used to presenting? Well, it's completely different than anything we've ever done before and I think that's the the joy of it is in in that quality. So um, Ian Grandage, who was the music supervisor on this project, he has brought his expertise and incredible knowledge of Tom Waits' music and um, skill into this project to, you know, find the different voice types that we need and the different... um, Instruments and the the specific players that would be perfect for this um, project. The, it's it's um, it calls for a lot of improvisation from the players and certainly from the singers, bringing all sorts of you know sounds that they wouldn't necessarily ever produce in a classical opera, obviously. Mm. But um, it's it's such a, a, a melting pot of different styles that it just had to have the perfect cast and the and the right players in the pit to make it work. So I think we've managed to achieve that. And, and there's there's quite a few empty beer bottles rolling around yeah. in the in the orchestra pit, but they're actually not as a consequence of a bunch of drunk <laughs> yeah. musos. They're they're instruments that are yeah. being you know. There's a lot of clattering and banging and rattling and yeah. soaring and screeching and squeaking and what have you and, and Ian has has incorporated all of these wild 
cacophonous, edgy um, found object found object yeah. noises into the thing, and it, yeah. and and given that the concept of the the design of the show and the way it's been executed through Matt Lutton's direction is very mechanical and and sort of like broken industrial um, slight disrepair, that sort of clattering, clanging um, that that is happening vocally as well as instrumentally um, really creates a, a very a, a beautiful sort of broken world, for want of a better word. Yeah. Kanan, for you, is it challenging to perform uh, given that, I mean, you've sung with uh, Opera Australia, the Victorian Opera, Opera... Uh, Opera Queensland and many other companies as a as a tenor, uh, you have a, a remarkable voice, which I last saw in uh, in the Rabbits. Um, uh, so, given that you have that kind of formal training and are familiar with the the, the canonical opera operatic works, has it been challenging to ad- to adopt and to perform in uh, for this production? Uh, I, I find everything I ever do challenging, so <clears throat> the answer is yes, but it's also a very, very welcome challenge because, um, you know, as you say, I've been around a while now and uh, particularly with my time at Opera Australia, I was there for such a long time that, that I sort of got into a bit of a loop because there's only so many shows that any one particular company can do and so if you're there long enough, they start coming back around again. Um, so it's very important to me to to keep... Um, challenging myself and being challenged by by people who employ me, and this is certainly that. Um, that being said, it's a, as I said, it's a very welcome challenge. I love contemporary um, opera, and I love contemporary music, and I love uh, physical theatre, and I love um, using my entire bag of tricks on stage. So. Um, a project like the Black Rider is is the perfect excuse to bring everything in the kitchen sink to the rehearsal room and um, with a very like-minded group of performers and musicians and creatives so that, you know, there's not a, a sane person in there really with love <laughs> and respect. Um, and that's perfect. That's exactly the way a, a show like this should be conducted. There should be no inhibition. There should be no... Um, fear of failure because there is no such thing as failure in any... as far as I'm concerned, in any... Escapade, but certainly in a piece written by Tom Waits and William Burroughs, you've yes. certainly got scope to fall flat on your face and, and call that an artistic choice and um, be applauded for it. And it's so rare that you get the opportunity to have such freedom and um, scope for exploration of developing characters, both musically and physically and dramatically. Mm. Yeah. Now, the... the I should acknowledge some of the other members of the cast. Uh, the wonderful Legato Chocolat, who's been a guest on the show numerous times. Mm. Uh, equally, Paul Capsus has been on the show many no, times. Meow, meow. <laughs> <laughs> so the, uh, it's a, I love the fact that there are cabaret performers and opera performers on stage together and that... Uh, and this reinforces just how important a player Victorian opera is in the artistic landscape, not just here in, in Melbourne in Victoria, but as a company, uh, because Victorian opera is so committed to new work, adventurous work, in a way that perhaps some other opera companies are not. Yes, I totally agree with that. And I think Richard Mills' view for the company is is a really, you know, exciting one and his vision for new works and vision for even even the presentation of existing works is really um, creative and, and interesting for the audiences. But I think this, this collaboration was perfect because I think the two companies, um, you know, they, they have... Uh, similar ideas about the way to present things and similar um, well it's it's looking forward but also 
just challenging the audiences a, a little bit more than a traditional theatre house would do or a traditional opera house would do. And, and I just think it's perfect fit between the two companies. Mm, and it's been an extraordinary demographic that, that we've had through in the 10 or so performances yeah. we've done thus far. We've had, um, you know, 95-year-old couples come tottering up in the foyer and say, that just blew my mind. I'm so glad I got, you know checked my Zimmer frame at the train station and came here and we've yeah. had young people come up going, I don't know what it was about, but I loved every second of it. Yeah. And we've had, the, yeah, you know, a few people um, ostentatiously walk out in the middle of the show, but I, I assume they've got um, stomach disorders <laughs> rather than any sort of or distaste maybe, for maybe what's the, going on. Maybe the babysitter has texted to well, say that... Well, quite right. Yes. yes, there's <laughs> anthrax in the house <laughs> come back and save the baby. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's been um, a real joy to see the... The, and the the, the theatre itself is so up close and personal that from the stage we can see what the audience is responding to and how they're going. And it's an absolute joy to, to watch their journey as we take ourselves mm. on our journey through through the performance of the show to, to be able to track what the audience is going through as well is really great fun. And Sorry, I was just going to say, and also the audience reaction. Sometimes, you know, one night an audience might applaud wildly at a certain moment, but the next night... There might be absolute silence, and mm. no one wants to break that mm. um, that moment on stage. So mm. it's really interesting to hear the different audiences' reactions. Mm. Well, and that is for me one of the joys of live performance: that no performance is ever the same two nights yeah. running, or even if in the same day, if you're doing a yeah. matinee. Mm. Um, uh, critical responses have been overall very, very positive. I don't know if you read kind of reviews. I know some performers do, some don't. Yeah. Some uh, uh, kind of. Uh, of the techni- of the artistic team do and some don't, but uh, to quote, uh, quote Cameron Woodhead, stylish and soulful, wild and disturbing and darkly funny, Black Rider is almost worth selling your soul to see. <laughs> so uh, that's a good response. Um, Kanan, I have a, an opera question for you specifically. Um, as an Australian artist working... Mm in opera. Mm. Um, The Australian government this week has just formally stated that they support uh, in kind, uh, kind of not necessarily completely unconditionally, the idea that opera companies should be fined uh, if they do not provide enough work for Australian artists. What's your response to that? (laughs) Good night, Irene. Um, (laughs) Uh, look, I don't, I don't want to talk about the fining. Uh, I certainly have very strong opinions about um, local artists being used if they're available and um, appropriate casting. And I think in recent times we've seen uh, examples of local artists being passed over for uh, supposedly superior international artists who have proven not to to be that. Um, so I am certainly all for um, Australian opera companies employing Australian singers as much as they possibly can and I'm certainly keen that uh, a government-funded uh, company is being monitored by governments to ensure that that is the case. I was also very pleased to see that the government saying that 
again, uh, in response to the National Opera Review, uh, that they've also agreed to the rec- recommendation that each of the major opera companies should be encouraged to develop a remunerated young artist program, which I think is vital for mm-hmm. the development and the growth of opera in this country. Mm-hmm. And I'm also delighted that uh, the government have accepted the recommendation that Victorian opera be supported to become part of the Australian Major Performing Arts Group, which yeah. is uh, kind of, uh, again, indicative of the high quality and inventive and ambitious and bold and creative work. Mm. That and to- important nature yeah. of Victorian opera. Yeah. Well, we're thrilled, obviously, but it's wonderful news for us. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, to uh, sidetrack back to the work we are talking about, Black Rider, the casting of the Magic Bullets, is a Malthouse Theatre and Victorian opera co-production presented as part of Melbourne Festival. So it gets in early and gets all the all the focus before the festival opens, which is mm-hmm. a very canny move. Uh, it's <laughs> on at the Cooper's Malthouse in the Merlin Theatre until the 8th of October, uh, Mondays and Tuesdays at 6.30pm, Wednesdays to Saturdays at 7.30pm, 3pm uh, matinees on Saturday and 5pm Sundays. It's uh, pretty non-stop. It is. Yes, Yes, we're all feeling it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, If you want to book, you can go to malthousetheatre.com.au or you can call 96855111. Tickets range from $35 to $69. That's Black Rider, the casting of the Magic Bullets at the Malthouse on until the 8th of October. I've been chatting with Kanan Breen and Phoebe Briggs about the production. Thank you both for joining us here at Triple R. Thank you. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.